Thank you, Brad, for leading us, and thank you for the privilege of uh, being here with you tonight. Uh, My name is Wes Alford. I'm the pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Sweetwater, down the road, home of the Lost Sea. (laughs) So, um, my daughter's with me tonight, Elizabeth. She came with me, and uh, my wife and many of my, we have six kids, uh, they're homesick too. So my wife had planned to come with me tonight, but she started feeling badly yesterday. So uh, anyway, so that's just the season we're in right now. I would like to read God's word, Psalm 50. Uh, We are all familiar with Psalm 51, David's famous prayer of repentance after his uh, horrific foul up with Bathsheba and, uh, and the murder of her husband Uriah. But we're perhaps not as familiar with uh, Psalm 50. Psalm 51 is about repentance. Psalm 50 uh, is about the need for repentance, particularly in regard to our worship. So uh, let me read for us Psalm 50, and then we'll pray and dive in. Psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. Your God, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, notice that if, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. 
But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Let's pray, shall we? We do ask, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us your word. Please grant us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, uh, open our minds and our hearts to what you are saying in the scriptures. And Lord, uh, lead us anew to the foot of the cross. Lead us anew to Jesus who makes in us, who creates in us right worship uh, from a renewed heart because of your grace. On you we can depend. So be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I grew up in the 1970s Episcopal Church in the USA. Now, if you know anything about the Episcopal Church, the ECUSA, E-C-U-S-A, you know that in the 1970s, just about every Episcopal Church um, in the United States of America was a hotbed of liberalism. And uh, and that's the church I grew up in. Um, It was... In Sumter, South Carolina, we lived there from the ages when I was uh, going into the seventh grade through finishing, going into the second grade, finishing up the seventh grade. So we were there about six years. And, um, and we loved the church we were a part of. We loved that church. Uh, it was called the Church of the Holy Comforter. And we called it... Uh, Holy Comfortable. That's what we called it. And our family loved that church. Anytime we, we, we said to ourselves on so many occasions, uh, after we had been to church, it was really kind of funny. It was a liberal church, but we had Sunday lunch every, you know, every day with the nice china and stuff at home. And we would always comment, I just feel like I've been to church. But, but, As much as we loved that church, there were things that we didn't see about it. There were things that were problems. Looking back, uh, we can see them, or I can see them, much more clearly. There were two big concerns at this church. Um, One was the church was full of religious formalism. It was a high church Episcopal church. And the basic mindset was... Uh, I did the liturgy, I'm good with God. I went to church, I did the liturgy. And it was a beautiful liturgy. I did the liturgy. I appreciated the liturgy. I'm good with God. The second thing was that within this church, I mean, after all, it was a liberal Episcopal church. And so they didn't really get together in Sunday school and talk about the Bible. They got together in Sunday school and talked about psychology and sociology and all kinds of things. But one of the, the second problem at the church, as there were with many 
churches at that time was there was all kinds of moral shenanigans going on in that church. Uh, Now, you know as well as I, you don't have to be a liberal church to have moral shenanigans going on in your midst. It happens enough in uh, Bible-believing conservative churches. But these were the two problems. These were the two problems, religious formalism and, uh, and moral looseness. All the while believing that we were good with God because it was beautiful and because uh, we had done the liturgy. We came away with a good feeling. Everything we thought was fine. Well, you know what? It was no different. This, this is a common problem in every church. It was a problem for Israel. It was a problem for God's people. Even back in the, the days when Psalm 50 was written. No different back then than it is today. These same problems, because of sinful human nature, these same problems dog us uh, in regard to our worship. Formalism and worship with no change of life. We could basically call it graceless worship. Graceless worship. So I'd like for us to look <coughs> excuse me, at Psalm 50 and... Um, and walk through this psalm. We'll have to go a little bit at a, at a I'll have to pace myself because uh, it's kind of a long psalm. But I want us to think about this. I want us to think about this formalism. I want us to think about worship that leads to no change in life. And I want us to think about the remedy. Uh, God takes this very seriously. And when I say worship, I don't just mean, and I don't think the psalm merely means, uh, our formal gathered worship. Yes, it does touch on that, and it it speaks to that, certainly. But it also speaks to the broader issue of my life as worship before the Lord, my response to him as worship. So let's let's take a look at it here. Uh, First of all, there is a picture, a scene of judgment. In verses 1 through uh, 6, we see that God is uh, appearing Look with me at verses 1 and 2. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and he summons the earth. He summons the earth. All the peoples of the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. So this is a picture of God God coming. uh, Revealing himself. He's shining forth from Zion. From the temple there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There he comes. There his beauty is shining. And yet, and yet, in verses 3 through 6, we see that all is not well. Perhaps God's people thought, God is coming and he's bringing his kingdom. He's finally going to get those pagans. He's finally going to deal with all the evil people that are out there. But the edges of that glory begin to grow dark. And there is, uh, God comes And he comes to speak. There's a devouring fire before him. (coughs) Around him there is a mighty tempest. And we begin to see that it is indeed a judgment scene. But the finger is not pointed at the world. The finger is pointed at God's people. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge who? His people. God comes in glory to judge his 
people. He calls, actually in verses 3 and 4, he calls heaven and earth. Verse 4 particularly. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. He calls to the heavens and the earth to come as witnesses. It's uh, The scene is a courtroom. They are witnesses against his people. And God is coming to bring his judgment. The heavens, verse 6, declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. When God comes to judge, you know, we often think that when God comes to judge, we'll somehow wiggle our way out from under it. We'll somehow give some reasonable excuse or we'll appeal to our, uh, our, our nature or our nurture. And we think that somehow there will be some way that we will, uh, that God will say, oh, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't know that. No, no. God's judgment is righteous. And he knows all and he sees all. And so when God comes to judge, the simple reality is that there is no gainsaying what he has said. There's no, there's no way out from under it because we will know when God comes to judge. All humans will know. They may not like it, but they'll know that he is right. He is right. Like David will say in Psalm 51, that you may be just in your judgments. Your judgments are right. And David, to his credit, owns that. But we're not looking at Psalm 51, we're looking at Psalm 50. So, God's complaint against his people. The first complaint is this formalistic worship. It's ritualistic. We see this in verses 7 through uh, 13. Um, God says, hear my people and I will speak. Now I want you to notice that. I want you to notice that... God comes and he says that he is going to speak. In verse 3 he says, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Silence is over. It's time for God to speak. Verse 7 he says, hear O my people and I will speak. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But notice this. Notice this. As God begins to address this problem of formalistic worship with his people, in verse 7, here's what he says. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. But then he says this little short phrase that we would do well to pay attention to. What does he say? He says, I am God, your God. I am God, your God. It sounds like the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, uh, out of the the smelting furnace. The God who rescues. It it seems like God is coming to his people who have been unfaithful in this regard to worship. And he's saying to them, what is it? Why does he say that? I am God, your God. It is very definitely an urgent reminder. But I wonder if God is saying to his people and to you and me, hey, Remember, remember me. I am am your God. I am the great God. I am the one who does mighty deeds. I am the one who rescues you. I am the one who has made you to be my people. I am God, your God. It sounds like, if I may be so risky as to say it, it sounds like a broken-hearted plea. Don't you remember me? God says... But the problem with the formalistic worship we see in verses 8 through 13 is that it's all about a bargain. 
It's all it's bargain worship. It's basically coming to God and saying, you know what, I'll give you what you want, and then you give me what I want. Which is essentially the way that people that pagan gods dealt with their constituency. They said, I've, you know, you give me what I want, and I'll give you what you want. And that was the whole it was all about bargaining. It was all about a transactional kind of relationship with God, and God will have none of it. Because God basically says to his people, he says in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Hey, you don't give to me. I'm the one who gives to you. I'm the one who supplies you with what you need. All the birds uh, of, the, of, of the hills, I know them all. They're all mine. I love verse 12. If I were hungry. In other words, we don't meet God's needs. God has no needs that we should meet. And that's not what the whole ritual of sacrifice and thanksgiving was about in ancient Israel. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and of goats? You're not supplying my wants. I'm not hungry. I own it all. I am the one who gives to you. You don't give to me. So this formalism in worship, they, they were trying to come and say to God, um, okay, so I've, I've done the ritual, I've offered the sacrifice, now Lord, you give me what I want. They were seeing it as, as this bargaining with God. Form, the problem, though, with this formalism, with basically, to, to go back to the, uh, uh, the analogy of the church I grew up in, the problem with formalism is that it always leads to a kind of moralism. It leads to, okay, God, you owe me. I gave you what you wanted. Now you give to me. You know, I remember a guy that worked with our youth group and everything. Um, he, 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 was, he was always there. This was years ago at the church where I did my internship in South Carolina. And... Uh, and his life fell apart. His wife left him. And basically, I remember sitting with him at his house, which, was, which at one time was a vibrant, lit-up place with lots of people over and, and a, a place of ministry and relationship. And we sat in that house that was now a big empty house. And his wife had left him. And he sat there and he basically was saying, you know, I did all this for God. And look what I got. Look what I got. You know, he was looking at things in terms of, look what I did for God. Doesn't God owe me better than this? That at its heart is moralism. It's saying God owes me. There's no sense of dependence upon God. Now, verses 14 and 15, I would suggest to you, are a turning point in this psalm. They are the heart of this psalm. They are the answer to the problems that we're reading about in this psalm. Now, before I, I go there, I want to read something uh, from a commentary. Um, this is from Alan Ross's commentary on the Psalms. And Alan Ross, interestingly, um, is a, uh, an Episcopal uh, scholar who works at Samford, who's a professor of Old Testament at Samford 
uh, Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. This is what he writes, and I think it's really interesting, and he captures it. Because the problem with formalism is there's no sense of dependence upon God. There's no sense of depending on His grace. There's no sense of, of God has all that I need, and I will humble myself before Him and trust Him and uh, have this relationship of dependence and grace with Him. Here's what he says. It's kind of a lengthy quote. Uh, hang on. Here then God is instructing the people that sacrificial worship must come from people who are dependent upon Him. This fundamental posture of dependence upon God. They need Him. And when they offer the sacrifice of praise to Him, it is to be an expression of gratitude for His provisions for them. This is why the true measure of proper worship is the praise of the people. Let me say that again. This is why the true measure of proper worship is the praise of the people. Not just congregational singing, but individual praise in the congregation. When faithful Israelites offered praise to God, genuine praise, it indicated that they were trusting God and He was meeting their needs. If they did not think they needed God, but that God needed them, their worship, though outwardly perfect, was a rejection of God. It was a form of worship, but without the proper motive and substance. I think that's a great quote. Because it captures the fact that God was looking for thanksgiving and praise from his people because he wanted them to, to be a relationship based on his grace. Based on his free mercy and grace to them. That he is the one who meets their needs. That he is the one who provides for everything that you and me and they need. So in verses 14 and 15, let's take a look at it quickly. This is, like I said, the, the answer to the problems that uh, Psalm 50 is addressing. It says here, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Verse 15 is probably the, the verse that we all know from Psalm 50 because that's a pretty, that's a wonderful promise that God gives there. But, but what's he getting at here? He is getting at the fact that God's relationship with Israel is one of a covenant of grace. It is a relationship that is based on God's free mercy and grace to them. And it's not just... It's not just God has given me everything I need materially. It's, it's comprehensive. It's both spiritual and, um, and material. And it's ultimately fulfilled, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the, the command here is offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why? Why? Because God has given us everything we need. God has given us, and for you and me as believers in Christ... In Jesus, we have everything we need. We have, God has lavished his riches upon us in Jesus Christ. And because of this grace, we are to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I don't think it's necessarily saying, uh, make your list of thanksgiving. You know, make your 
Uh, Count your blessings, name them one by one. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think this is getting at something, uh, what, what God is wanting his people to see. And he's wanting the thanksgiving to flow from the realization, to put it in Paul's terms, I'm not under law, I'm under God's grace. And when we see that, and when that begins by the power of the Holy Spirit to get under our skin and into our hearts and into our minds in the proper way, we will flow with thanksgiving and gratitude. And the expression of that will be the performance of our vows to the Most High, which I understand this to be not just formal vows, but really the response of obedience to the Lord. So it's, it's the realization of His grace expressed in thanksgiving, and then the response to His grace of obedience to the Lord. Now, of course, our, our obedience is not perfect. Um, we still, you know, there still was the sacrifice for, for sins. But nonetheless, we bring to the Lord uh, our obedience. And then lastly, we see him as our rescuer, our deliverer. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So, we, we've got expressions of praise and thanksgiving and glorifying God coming in every which way. We see his grace. Um, his grace is expressed in our obedience, which is a way of certainly glorifying God. We, matter of fact, without it, we don't glorify God. And we look to him for deliverance when we are in our extremity. I love what we just sang, if I can find hymn number four. Verse 3, I cried to him in time of need, Lord God, oh, hear my calling, exclamation point. For death he gave me life indeed and kept my feet from falling. For this my thanks shall endless be it. Sounds like the writer of Psalm 107 has read Psalm 50. Uh, oh, thank him, thank our God with me to God all praise and glory. So, this is the answer. Grace, ultimately, is the answer to formalism. It's also the answer to the people that God addresses next. The people of the moral shenanigans. But to the wicked, verse 16, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And verse 17 is the heart of it. You hate discipline or instruction. And you cast my words behind you. In other words, they have, they have no effectual um, uh, influence on your life. Matter of fact, uh, you, you come to worship and you, uh, you do the ritual. And then you go out and you live however you want. Which ultimately is a life of immorality, of thievery, of adultery. Or at least, or at least winking at it and not... Uh, and not seeing that these things are a big problem in our own lives and the lives of others. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. You know what? We may not steal and we may not be outward adulterers. But I'll tell you what, who can tame the tongue? Who can tame the tongue? 
Blaise Pascal said that there would not be three friends left in the world if we knew how we talked about one another. You see, God's grace is effectual in changing our life. True, uh, the true meeting of God in worship, the true gratitude expressed in him, the true knowledge of God and being under his grace leads to a changed life. And there was a fundamental misunderstanding that God addresses with these people. These things you have done, and I have been silent. The people thought, God hasn't said anything. It must be okay. Or matter of fact, because God hadn't said anything, they didn't see it as an opportunity to change or to repent. They thought that God's silence meant that, that he condoned it just like everybody else. You thought that I was one like yourself. He's not. And Brad expressed it well in his prayer that God is not, he's holy. God is not like us. He is good, but he is not like us. And he takes, uh, he takes the standard of his glory and his holiness very seriously. I, you, you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I speak. I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Remember those two points I mentioned earlier? God comes, verse 3, and does not keep silence. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak, and I will testify against you. God was silent, but it wasn't condoning. And now it's time for him to speak. But what does his silence mean? What does the silence of God mean in this case? Listen to, I've got this marked in my Bible. There it is. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. You might know this verse. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. You could even count that as, you could even say that's silence. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's silence is an opportunity for repentance. It is not condoning our wrong, our moral shenanigans. So how does he wrap it up here? You see... uh, Worship that doesn't flow from grace, it either leads to formalism, which is a kind of moralism. Lord, I've given you what you want, now you give me what I want. Or, and and also along with that, and or, it leads to just out and out uh, immorality in our life. The church I grew up in, we didn't really have small groups or Bible studies or anything like that, but... The theater crowd was at that church, so I probably don't need to say much more. Uh, But we had parties. I remember parties. You know, and and so the the moral shenanigans, I remember. And they weren't necessarily, uh, you know, let's get together and just have fun. It It was a different kind of party. But look with me at verse 22 and 23. I love the way this ends. Um, Dr. Motier says in his uh, commentary on the Psalms, if if you're looking at verse 22 and 23 with me, he says, you know, what began as a scene of judgment ends as a call to salvation. One of the things I love about this Psalm 
is that even though it is severe and that God is speaking to his people and saying, you need to get your worship right, you need to understand, you don't need to just get your worship right, you need to come to me. The God of grace, the holy God of glory, who, yes, still loves you and says, I am God, your God, come to me and let's get it right in our relationship. And I want you to understand that I will uh, cleanse you and forgive you and you will worship me. But look at verse 22 as he wraps it up. He speaks to the wicked and he says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Mark this then, you who forget God. Can I just say something? This is true of my experience and is it not true of your experience? Think about this. We are still sinners, are we not? Every time you sin, you forget God. Is that not true? And have you not thought about that to yourself? Have you not said after you've said that word, that harsh, angry word to your child or, or you gestured to somebody in traffic or whatever it was, every time we sin, we forget God. And right after we've sinned, we realize, I forgot God. I forgot that, that He is my God and I, I shouldn't do that. That's so true. You know, we are prone to forget God. And God says, mark this, as he speaks to the immoral. He says, mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. You know what? Tim Keller points this out. He says, you know what? Jesus was torn apart and nobody delivered him. And he's the one that died in our place. He's the one that was torn apart in our place and there was no deliverance for him. He bore the brunt of the wrath of God fully in our place. That we might know grace and that our hearts might be, might be changed and that we might be filled with, lo and behold, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That we might offer our very bodies a living sacrifice to the living God. To perform our vows, the obedience of faith, and to know that God is our deliverer and rescuer, and that we will trust him and depend on him in every trouble and hardship. But then it goes on at the end, and it says, the one, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, this one glorifies me. Grace leads to sacrifice of thanksgiving. And that glorifies God. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. How do we order our way rightly? We come to Jesus. I think about the woman at the well in John 4. Here's this woman, and she is not an Israelite. She's a Samaritan. And she's, she acknowledges her ritualistic worship on Mount Gerizim. But she encounters Jesus and he changes her. And she goes into the village and she says to them, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, he knows all the dirt on me. Come see a man who knows everything I ever did. Come and see him. And yet he still accepts me. He still welcomes me. He still treats me with dignity and respect. He shows me grace. And that woman was filled with wonder and amazement. Now, 
There's an end to the story about the church I grew up in. Um, some people in that church started to go to uh, a lay people's renewal movement. It was called Curcio. And, um, and they got converted. And they started to read their Bible. And they started to look for priests who believe the Bible too. And they got a priest from, uh, I think it's Trinity Episcopal School for the Ministry in uh, Pennsylvania, a Bible-believing Episcopal seminary. And I want you to know, uh, some of those friends that my parents, uh, bless them, partied with, they became real Christians. They were converted. And that church has been changed. And it is now part of the Anglican Church in North America. And it's a Bible, it's an Anglican church, it's not a Presbyterian church, but it is a Bible believing church. They're a church now that takes not only their liturgy seriously, in other words, their focus is not on the prayer book, but on the scriptures from which their prayer book comes. You see, God did a work of grace in the hearts of many of the people. My third grade teacher is one of those people who became a Christian. And, and that church is completely different. Because they came to understand the grace that they have in Jesus Christ. And so now it's filled with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. With lives that are characterized and shaped by the pursuit of obedience to Jesus and people that depend on him in the day of trouble and they know his deliverance and they glorify him. You know, it's no different with you and me. It's no different with us. Jesus calls out and wants to meet you and me in, our, in his grace wherever we're at right now that we might taste that he is enough, that he is our sufficiency, and that in him we have everything we need, and that our mouths might be fat with thanksgiving and praise, because this God is our God forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Psalm 50. Thank you that what began as a scene of imminent judgment becomes through your confronting sin and through giving the remedy and revealing your grace, it ends with an offer of salvation. And so, Lord, grant us to order our way aright by coming to Jesus and by being filled with the Holy Spirit and with the truth of your word and living that way because we are expressing thanksgiving and praise for what you have done in us. Remind us that we are your people who are recipients of a great mercy and of a great pardon and of a great grace, a grace that is greater than all our sin and all our troubles and we can rely on you we give you thanks and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.